0: Hello and welcome to Talking You Retina, the official podcast of the European Society of Retina Specialists. I'm Jonathan McRae. In this podcast, we bring you expert discussions and interviews with leaders from the world of retina and beyond. We'll also keep you up to date with the latest news from the society. Happy New Year to you, if it's not unfashionably late to still be doing that. Uh, 2023, let's hope this year is a lot nicer to the world than the last three years have been. There is lots to look forward to, in fairness. The Euretina Winter Meeting is in March in Vilnius, and Amsterdam will host the annual Congress in October. Closer on the horizon, January 26th sees the Yours Committee hosting a case club. They'll be presenting and discussing six cases with the aim of teasing out practical learning points. That's at 8pm CET. 7pm GMT on Thursday, January 26th. Registration is open now on the Uretina website. Right, that's all the announcements for the moment. On with the podcast. As you may already know, Uretina and the European Board of Ophthalmology have announced a new exam for retina specialists, and it's going to be held later this year. To find out why, how it works, and who should take the exam, Uretina President Alistair Laidlaw is joined by Nicole Etter, Director and Chair at the Department of Ophthalmology at Münster University Medical Center in Germany, and Brendan Strong, Director of Education at Agenda. They've both been working on the exam. Uh,
1: Alistair, you're very welcome back to the podcast. Happy New Year. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and Happy New Year to you too. So perhaps I can just ask Nicole and Brendan what their roles have been in turn in terms of setting up this exam.
2: Yeah, well, Happy New Year as well from my side. Um, well, I'm an elected board member of eretina, retina and um, ever since... EBO came up with the idea of not only having a comprehensive ophthalmology exam, but to introduce subspecialty exams in different fields of ophthalmology, it was clear that Uretina would be the organization to cover the retina part. Being a board member of Uretina, I was asked by the president to establish and organize the FIBO subspecialty exam for retina.
1: Thank you. And who? which other board members and clinicians have been helping you?
2: Well, we have a we have a group, and I have to mention um, Rainer Stingemann and Jens Kilkegaard, who are also uh, on the group and uh, with me together uh, setting up this exam. And I would like to hand over to Brendan because he's really uh, a very, very uh, solid column. <laughs> uh, without, uh, we could not have done this work.
1: So hi, Brendan. Great great to have you on this podcast. I think your first outing on the Retina podcast. Um, so Brendan, what's been your role?
3: Uh, thanks, Alistair. It's nice to be here. Uh, so I'm I, essentially project managing uh, the process, so trying to bring people together, r- remind people about deadlines and things, <laughs> uh, pulling together the subjects, and then also organising. We have uh, an expert in psychometrics who's helping us to look at the psychometric, the psychological uh, side of the exam, as well as the content side.
1: So being a bit modest there, Brendan, because you've actually got a huge amount of experience in exams, but we'll, we'll pass that over because I know it's your nature. So, um, Nicole, we're setting up this exam uh, to do what exactly?
2: Well, the, the purpose is to harmonize the standard of knowledge for retina specialists across Europe. So uh, this exam will assess candidates' ability to manage a retina clinic.
1: Okay, so are we looking at a, a World Cup uh, of retina specialists that we're going to identify the very, very best? Or is this a sort of competency-based, you've got your driving license off you go, type of exam. <laughs> yes,
2: uh, uh, absolutely right. Well, um, as I said, this exam um, rather tests your competence of being able to deal with retina clinic and uh, retina patients. So, EBO and Uretina were setting the standards for retina specialists. And so at a minimum, the candidates should be in the final year of a retina fellowship where there are fellowships. Of course, not in every country in Europe we do have fellowships or have passed the comprehensive EBO examination or something equivalent, for example, the um, FRC ophthalmology and be in the last year of experience working in a retina clinic.
1: Thank you. So we're not looking for world-class superstars. People don't have to be frightened of the exam. Um, it's to show that you, you know what you're doing well enough to cope.
2: Absolutely. You're right.
1: Great. So who's um, eligible to take the exams? And specifically, is it just Europeans?
2: No. Everyone um, who is fulfilling the criteria I just mentioned can sit the exam However, if it comes to uh, a diploma, there's a difference then if the candidate is from a European country or not. So if the candidate uh, is graduated and has a permanent authorization to practice ophthalmology in one of the EU countries, then the candidate will receive an EBO accredited and stamped diploma and be awarded the post-nominal title FIBOS retina. So if candidates are coming from countries not listed on the European Union of Medical Specialists, they will receive a certificate of success, but not a diploma.
1: So we can take all comers, but there's a bit of a difference in in terms of what certificate you receive. There's nothing about this exam that actually allows you to practice in Europe. What this exam does is just certify that you've reached a certain standard within your subspecialty.
2: That's absolutely right. So whether you can practice in Europe is dependent on your uh, permanent authorization you had already acquired. And the retina exam is just to prove that you have a good knowledge of uh, retinal issues in different fields of of retina we have even in retina we have different subfields and uh, this is to prove that you are eligible to manage a retina clinic. So
1: Nicole if a candidate's lining up and trying to decide what level of knowledge they need can we give them a guideline about what the absolute basic standard is and how far beyond that they need to go?
2: Well, the the minimum required to cover the exam is the AAO basic and clinical science uh, volumes. But of course, Uretina offers much more sources for knowledge, for example, the Uretina webcasts, the Uretina conferences, and um, all the podcasts, which are also available on the Uretina website.
1: So many things that are in textbooks are a few years out of date. For example, there's a lot of information about central serous choroidopathy, for example, that would not be in date. But we've we've covered a lot of that. There's a lot of stuff in the uh, in the congress content that can be streamed,
2: and we have uh, a recommendation list for readings, uh, which can also be found on the Uretina and EBO website with some cutting edge um, publications. So it's not only um, the it's not only the books from the American Academy, but also publications with recent knowledge.
1: Brilliant. So it's really open to absolutely everyone anywhere uh, to take part, which is which is great to have set something up like that because I'm not aware of another post postgraduate qualification in um in Retina specifically. So thanks Nicole. Um Brendan. So tell us, how are we structuring the exam? What are the number of questions? What's the type of questions? Um, Is it just texts or images that people are going to be looking at? Could you give me some some insight into that, please?
3: Yeah, of course. So uh, what we're trying to do is assess people's theoretical knowledge, but also a bit of clinical acumen. So the exam is in two parts. Uh, The first part will be uh, an MCQ section or what we call a written uh, part of the exam. Uh, That's actually going to have a mix of type of MCQs. So one type is the single best answer where people will be given a clinical vignette, uh, the sort of thing like a patient comes in and indeed uh, will be shown clinical images and asked what their next steps might be or what a right diagnosis or what kind of a treatment uh, might be appropriate for this patient. So it's sort of testing their ability to recognize the issue, diagnose it, and and what should be done about it. Uh, Others will be more straightforward, theoretical questions. Uh, So you're sort of common asking a question and someone selects the right option from a group of them. Uh, We're going to have, uh, we're looking towards having about 100 questions (laughs) for people to answer in a two, two and a half hour exam. Uh, We're developing at the moment, so that may be adjusted. So that first part, that MCQ part, is actually going to be held online. So I think also that helps to open it up uh, to more people. So once you pass the online part of the exam, which will be held in June, you can then proceed to uh, sit the second part, which is a Viva Voce or an interview-based exam, which will be held uh, just prior to the EU Retina Congress in Amsterdam. So that's going to be a one-hour exam. Uh, with four interviews, 15 minutes each. And in each interview, people will be presented with two cases that they'll be asked to discuss with expert examiners.
1: Thanks, Mike Brendan. Can I just ask you for for a bit more detail? Um, 100 questions. How do you develop 100 questions? Where do you get the expertise from?
3: Uh, That's a very good question, Uh, Alistair. um, As you know, uh, essentially we, we worked with the sections within EU Retina Um, so as people I'm sure know, there's eight sections, um, sort of subspecialties within EU retina. Uh, we blueprinted the exam, uh, which Nicole put a lot of work into, uh, to determine how many questions each section should provide. And then we worked with, uh, the psycho, a psychometrics expert who advised on how to develop questions, provided those to the, um, subspecialty sections and, and, they all wrote a certain proportion of the 100 questions. It was a, it was a lot of work, and all credit to them. Like, I'd guess how many people are involved in that bit? Oh, uh, certainly north of sixty, sixty-four. I mean, essentially, it was all the sections had to pull pull a load uh, to to cover their area within the exam. So look, exams
1: are complex scientific instruments, aren't they? They have to be very sensitive measurement scales. This isn't just sort of sitting down writing things down on the back of a cigarette packet, is it? Can we have faith that this exam is going to be able to discriminate between the really good candidate and the not so good candidate? Uh,
3: yes, uh, there's a few ways um, that we achieve that discrimination within the exam design. Uh, the first step is actually having uh, these experts to write questions and work on the uh, cases that will be used in the Viva Voce. Um, These are all practicing clinicians, they're researchers, uh, they're academics, so they understand what people should know. So that's step one. The second step, uh, which we're currently designing, is how we score each question and how we set a standard for what the passing uh, rate looks like. So essentially, the candidate who passes what their level of knowledge should look like. And then uh, on a third level, um, there will be a multi-year process where we review how each question performed against the performance of the candidates. So for example, if someone performs very well, they should have a majority of the questions correct. And if we find a question that they did not perform well on, but they performed well overall in the exam, and someone else who did not perform well in the exam does perform well on this question, we might have to look and adjust the question. And that's that's a multi-year process. Each year you make it more and more reliable, more and more accurate. Um, and actually having a uh, 100 questions is part of that reliability as well, because it's more data uh, that we can use um, to kind of fine tune uh, the exam.
1: And I think you're a bit understated in your own introduction, but you've got a lot of expertise in that and you're being backed up by people, aren't you? Yes, indeed. (laughs)
3: With with the help of a statistician and a psychometrician. Uh, The psychometrician is is helping us in terms of building quality into the process. So that's building that multi-year process and determining our standard setting and our scoring. And we'll be using uh, or we'll be working with a statistician who'll actually kind of crunch the numbers for us in terms of determining who passes on the day.
1: And if anyone is interested, this is exactly the same process that you go through in questionnaire development, views as a, a scientific measurement tool. So um, brilliant. Thanks very much for that, Brendan. So Nicole, just to um, just to start wrapping up, who should take this exam? What's in it for them to take it if it's not a regulatory requirement? And how much is it going to cost them?
2: Let's start with the last question. It will cost 550 euros, and that's only this year because it's the first year we will have this exam. And um, candidates will have free access to the Euretina meeting in Amsterdam. So this is a very attractive deal, and uh, we hope to attract uh, a lot of candidates who will sit the exam. As I said, they should have already the boards in their country, the boards of ophthalmology in their country. And uh, it would be ideal if they would have passed the comprehensive EBO and had at least one year of retina training. And um, since uh, I think it is very important to set For standards in retina and in ophthalmology, I hope that a lot of people will join us and uh, it will be a growing community having the FIBO um, retina. Yeah, I
1: think I I quite often end up interviewing for people. I think somebody who's got this exam is going to stand out at an interview compared to someone else who hasn't bothered to show that they can pass this exam. So I think there's something definitely in it for an individual. The other thing is, if we set the exam at a level that you might expect people to have at the end of their um, year of fellowship or subspecialty training in retina, particularly if you've got it uh, a bit earlier than that you are can get more out of your fellowship or, or period of subspecialty training so I think anything that gets you the theory and makes you prove that you know it has to be uh, has to be worthwhile in my opinion
2: it definitely um, gets you credits
1: that's great I, I really understand a huge amount more than I did before thank you very much indeed uh, any further thoughts either from
2: Brendan or Nicole Um, Have we already mentioned the application deadline? So application C, (laughs) application uh, will close on March 15th this year. And so please, uh, we have already received um, a lot of um, applications. uh, So just make sure that it's not uh, in the last day.
1: So that's eight weeks from now, I think, Nicole.
2: Yes, absolutely right.
1: Brendan,
3: anything to add? Uh, No, I think we've covered quite a lot there. Uh, Thank you very much.
1: And thank you to you both. And also thank you uh, to both of you for your hard work in setting up the exam um, and to everybody else involved. Uh, There's been an amazing effort and uh, I'm hoping we're going to get something really good out of it that's going to make your retina a leader in terms of establishing standards that clinicians should use in retina.
0: Well, Alistair, Nicole, uh, and Brendan, thank you so much for that. Very exciting um, to have this uh, on the the calendar ahead of you. I hope it goes really well for everyone involved. Right, we're looking for your suggestions for things to cover in the podcast over the next year. If there's an area that you'd like us to explore or have a question or comment on the podcast, you can email us, podcast at uretina.org. I'm Jonathan McRae. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Talking Uretina.